Hey everyone, and welcome to Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast, where we go through every X-Men story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I'm Zach. And guess what, Adam? What, Zach? We're not alone this week. No. Which, uh, honestly, which... I, like, I like to think that we play this up, but everyone <laughs> who has downloaded this episode already knows the mystery, because, <laughs> like... It's in the title. That's kind of how promotion works, guys. Uh, but yeah. And speaking of mysteries, uh, we are actually recording in Madripoor this evening, right? We, we are because <laughs> we've got a special guest. You may know him from Wayward, Glitter Bomb, Champions, Avengers No Surrender, Secret Empire United, Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons, Hunt for Wolverine, Mystery in Madripoor, and other comics with very long names. It's Jim Zub. Jim, how are we doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing good. That was a that was good rundown of of a whole slew of titles there. Thank you. Well, I started I started writing down a few things that you had going on, and I was like, I am typing way more than I expected. I, I, I swear, I'm not in charge of these long titles. It's not. I'm not the one who picks them. Well, I I didn't know if you just liked adding colons to stuff, or you know, just jumping extra adjectives and verbs in there just to have some fun. I like doing that with my solicits. I'll make big rambling, like Stan Lee style, bombastic solicits. But I don't necessarily name these, these, um, these titles of these books. They're fine and all. I'm I'm proud of them. It's wonderful. I just, you know, yeah. Sometimes you're like, it's a bit of a mouthful. We were actually talking off air. Surprisingly, none of these actually with the letter X in them. But we're gonna let that slide for now because it has touched on so much of the X Men universe. That I'm, I'm sort of yeah dipping my toes in the mutant waters here, little bits and pieces. Let's just start this out with an X-Men thing. Jim, mm-hmm. what's your history? What's your relationship to the X-Men? Was this something that you had a connection to before it became part of your job? Or was this something you had to learn along the way? No, I grew up, uh, my brother and I were ardent like Marvel readers. We were really hardcore um, so in the eighties, uh, we read a lot of Marvel comics. We got obsessed with the official handbook of the Marvel universe. And that turned into like this sprawling checklist of trying to get first appearances and origin issues and just anything we could get our hands on. And my brother was actually the one who was obsessed with the X-Men, but we both read all of each other's stuff, like all the time. So I collected Spider-Man, a lot of the Avengers stuff. Um, <clears throat> we would sort of split like the Marvel universe in twain. Uh, but I read the uncanny X-Men and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Joe started collecting like really heavily around, I think the late one forties, like the earliest issue he had for the longest time was hilariously one forty one. you know, days of future past. Can you imagine (laughs) that's one of your first issues you ever read and you're just like, this thing is nuts. I don't even know what's going on. Um, but we loved it. We loved all the books. And then eventually the book I started collecting was Excalibur when it first came out. Uh, I really enjoyed Excalibur a lot, but we would both read each other's stuff. I'd read X factor that Joe was collecting. He would read my Spider-Man comics and it was just, the collection was sort of this 
shared mass of Marvel goodness and we couldn't get enough of it. And um, I've been, you know, obviously for the work I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of research and rereading a bunch of those old books and really appreciating how well put together they were and the quality of the, the rolling soap opera that is the X-Men and just those, the drama's really well tooled and the will they, won't they on some of the romantic stuff and the action is always there's a lot of great variety to it. And some of the things we take for granted about the characters, I think rereading that stuff and watching it kind of evolve has been really cool for me to sort of go back and go, oh, yeah, like stuff that I always assume about these characters is the standard sort of feel for them, whatever it's, you know, Wolverine or Cyclops or any of them. Uh, you read it and you can see, no, that's the moment where that started to become a thing. You know, there's some of those early issues where they're like, Oh no, if Wolverine gets dropped in a fire, he won't survive, you know, like weird stuff like that. And you're kind of laughing because they like nowadays you could put him in a nuclear blast <laughs> and he would just sort of like shrug it off or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, that's the, the early days when the healing factor was not the end all and the be all. Yeah, it just needs stuff like that. I'm really enjoying, um, you know, the research that I've done for the books I've worked on has turned into kind of a, a little side thing where I'm just really going back in with a fine tooth comb and rereading and enjoying them. Yeah. No one, no one's going to say the, uh, you know, those eighties Claremont comics are not good. I mean, there's, there's a whole mini uh, podcasting empire built around, Hey, these are pretty neat. But I think what's, I think what was most interesting about what you had brought up is Excalibur, Excalibur being a, you know, book you remember, I think at this point you are like the fifth or sixth, creator that we have had on this show that is like oh yeah excalibur that was that was my jam that was my jam oh really that's interesting well for me it's like i'm a huge sword and sorcery guy and excalibur was sort of like it was like magic x-men like it was yeah it was you know the the magic x-men in england and they they went on more fantasy style adventures and really weird warpo stuff the book had a nice rise sense of humor you know like the the Alan Davis artwork was just unstoppably good. And I, I was already a fan of his from the annuals. And so it was like, yeah, that book really hit the spot for me. It was really well put together. And even though it was steeped in some really bizarre continuity, it just worked. Like you you knew the characters, you got it, you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, um, you know, and I know Jordan's a big fan of it as well. When I was in New York, we were talking about Excalibur and, he was sort of pining like he would love to bring it back. And I'm just like, I bet you there's probably six or seven people who would like kill oh, yeah. for that book. Yeah, you, know? you guys would be having a fist fight in the office. Oh, it would be a, a you know, battle royal. It's interesting too, because one of the things I've noticed now being on the other side of it, where sometimes books will come up and, and not, I'm not saying specifically Excalibur, but like a, a concept, you know, people start banding around, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so, or wouldn't it be great to have X book, X as in just a general, not X book, uh, back. And uh, everyone starts sort of, you, you can see people starting to posture. Like you can see this weird, like, oh, I'm going to take that. Oh, you better stay the hell back, buddy. And it, it starts to get kind of funny. Everyone gets really territorial over these things. I'm currently, um, there's a book I really want to do in 2019, and I'm getting really territorial about it. And when I was in Boston a few weeks ago, we went out for dinner, a whole bunch of us, and I brought it up and just like literally scanned around the table to see if anyone reacted. Like I wanted to <laughs> size up the competition. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I love it. That's really funny. Um, yeah. So Jim, you're talking a little bit about behind the scenes stuff here. Mm -hmm. um, 
I want to compliment you because uh, I think the way you came onto my radar originally was not as a writer, but I feel like you've spent an amazing amount of time very patiently answering people's questions about the <laughs> comics industry. Um, specifically, I feel like uh, on a regular basis, you are answering the, you know, how do I break into the industry? Um, where does that, because you you are very nice and you answer a lot of questions on your blog, on, on social media. Yeah. Um, where does that drive to share your experiences come from? Well, um, I know it sounds a little insane, but I, I have a day job. So um, I, I teach full time. I'm a mm -hmm. tenured professor at an art college here in Toronto. And I've been doing that for several, quite a few years. Um, and so the teacher thing is kind of like baked into my DNA at this point. Like, I don't just want to tell you something. If you have a question, I want to try and really help you to understand mm -hmm. what this is and what it entails. And so um, a lot of times when I was going through this, like I've got a pretty long long history with comics in that sense. Like I, uh, although I'm writing now and, and it is really where I want to be and what I want to do, I've been working in comics in various capacities since like 2002. And so I kind of have seen a lot of different parts of the elephant. Like I've been in production, I've been in editorial, I've been a colorist, I've done artwork, I've done lettering, um, you know, pre-production, all kinds of different stuff. And I feel like that has helped really strengthen, first of all, my work and give a greater appreciation to all the different pieces that go into production. Um, and, and it helped me to understand that, man, I wish I'd known more of this earlier because it would have really yeah. helped me as a creator. And so when people ask stuff, you know, and they mean it earnestly, they, they just want to know. And people are fascinated. I feel like those DVD extras have become part and parcel of the way we we want to understand what happens behind the curtain. We want to know what the creative process is. And usually that's a good thing. Like sometimes it can be frustrating that people seem to want to spoiler a story before it comes out, or they want to know everything right now instantaneously, but most of it's really great. Like I want people to appreciate the process. And so if I can answer some questions for them and do it in a way that hopefully is thorough enough that I can then refer people back to it. So I've like written a lot of blog posts about, writing and pitching. And, um, I have a script archive on Patreon where people mm -hmm. can literally see how scripts are written and understand that process so that it's not sort of demystifying it. Like, yes, it is an amazing, cool thing to be able to contribute to Marvel comics and all these different properties. And it is within your grasp to understand this. It's not some mystical thing where I sit around and <laughs> oh, inspiration strikes me. And then I sit at the T the keyboard and and the muses dance through my fingertips. Like I don't, I don't want it to feel, I'm much more pragmatic about this stuff, which isn't to say that it's not magical at points or that it's not special, but just that it is knowable and understandable. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. to me, I feel like that's important for people to see and to grasp. And in some ways, if they want to tell stories in comics, if they want to make their own creative projects, if I can help them a little bit to demystify some of that or, or bring them, through the process so much the better, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can just speak from personal experience that I, I found a lot of the resources you put out really insightful. So oh, thanks. Um, thank you for doing that. I'll tell you what's most interesting for me personally of the stuff that you've put out like that. 
uh, and this will this my background will inform this. I have a uh, bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and an MBA. So seeing how you have broken down all those nitty gritty sales numbers and you know oh. <laughs> what that actually yeah, yeah. means to people, because people don't have a good grasp of general business. Like it, if that's not their job, that's not something they think about, not right. something they comprehend in the same way. And especially, you know, yeah, there's all this stuff going on with comic fans wanting to throw out, well, you see this number from Diamond and this number here, which means all this stuff. And I've loved how you've been able to, you know, cut through that and say, no, 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 this is what actually matters. This is the stuff that's not accounted for. So when you see this number, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's all these other factors right. that go into a book. Well, and I think this idea that, you know, I, I get it. Like there's a lot of, in almost any industry, there's going to be, armchair quarterbacking, you know, and it's, some of it's valid, like fans want what they want. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, you're trying to speak from a a position of knowledge, you know what I mean? Rather than assumption. And, and one of the difficult things is Marvel and, and these other publishers, they don't publish their numbers. They don't publish their real sales numbers. That's, and it's not their job to do that for you. Right. Their job is to publish these books and you consume them as you choose. Um, so people assuming a lot of things, uh, you know, it can be frustrating at times because you're like, look, at the end of the day, this is a business and yes, they're experimenting or they're throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. But if something is consistently losing money, if it is not working, they're not just going to publish it ad nauseum for the sake of publishing. Like that's not how this stuff actually works. It has to hold its own in a marketplace. You know what I mean? And that's, uh, in that marketplace, maybe different than what you realize it's more than just the wednesday warriors going out buying single issues and that's a good thing you know the fact that there are multiple outlets the fact that there are more opportunities to release all kinds of different stuff um so one of the things you mentioned uh earlier was that you have a day job yeah and i one of the things i I, we like to ask creators is just when the heck do they sleep because (laughs) you're the programming coordinator at Seneca College's animation program. Mm. How how did you become that? And how do you balance that full-time job with all of the different freelancing stuff that you do? And you teach on top of running this program. Right. So how I'm do doing all usually, that? like I'm not on right now, but next week school starts. So I've been doing staff meetings and sort of prep meetings and budget meetings and stuff like that. But we've got... Um, I've been coordinator of the program here at Seneca since 2006. And so it's, oh, wow. it's really been like 12 years of being in charge of the program. And the good side of that is, is that there are processes in place and I'm not building the thing whole cloth every year. We're iterating. So like every year the curriculum gets updated a little bit and the budget gets tweaked. And, but we have a system that we've been using that works very well. It's this award-winning animation program. Our students are, working for some of the biggest companies in the world. We've got students at Disney, we've got students at Pixar and Blizzard. Uh, we've got people working on at um, Ubisoft and in ILM, you know, all sorts of different places. And so it's been a really gratifying thing to be able to do that and to not have to let go of sort of my own creative desires, like wanting to make things um, and, and 
you know, to, to create stories. That's why I got into animation. That's why I got into comics. I want to tell stories. I want to really enjoy that process. So we've got a great staff. They do a wonderful job. Um, uh, we have a system that works really well. And, and the courses that I teach, currently I'm teaching a class called Layout, which is like basic perspective and location design mm -hmm. and animation history, where we're literally watching films and analyzing them for story and content. Um, both artistic content and, and sort of narrative content. It, it's great. It's a, it, it dovetails very well with the kind of comic stuff that I'm doing. Um, I really thoroughly enjoy it. The students constantly inspire me. And it also gives me, although they're not teenagers, they're, you know, in their uh, sort of late teens, early 20s, it does also inadvertently give me research for things like Champions or things like Wayward when I'm dealing yeah. with teenagers. And it's not like I sit there with a notepad and go, keep talking, you know, but just like <laughs> you still get insight. You get insight into priorities or it just reminds you of what your priorities were when you were a teenager. You know what I mean? Like the kinds of things, Absolutely. the dramatic things that were so crucial to your development in those periods of your life. And so I love all of it. I love being able to do it, but it also means that the majority of my writing is happening in and around that. So mm -hmm. um, I'm at the school usually four days a week. I've got one day where I'm working from home, uh, obviously madly writing comics. Um, mostly on my lunch hours I'm writing or I'm answering correspondence with editors or doing letter proofing or checking colors, all the stuff that comes into doing monthly books. Um, and my evenings are really packed. So I usually get home. I'll have dinner with my wife. I really like to cook because for the time that I'm concentrating on doing that, I don't think about other things. I'm just focused on don't wreck dinner. Uh, <laughs> and then we talk. And then I go up to my studio, which is where I am right now. I shut the door. And usually from around 7 o'clock till midnight, I'm writing. So um, that's almost every single weeknight. And wow. most weekends I'm putting in, you know, eight to 10 hours a day writing. Uh, it's intense, you know, mix that with convention travel and stuff like that. And it is like easily two full-time jobs. Uh, but they're all things that I love. And this is sort of like the time of my life where I can burn those candles at both ends, sock away money and build towards, you know, a creative retirement in the sense that I get to do this for a living um, you know, it's great. And, and my wife is very, very patient and very supportive. Um, it's, it's the, the writing career stuff has honestly hit a, a different place over the last two years. Like it used to be when I was doing Thunderbolts, I was like, Oh, I have a monthly book at Marvel. This is crazy. I can't even believe this has happened. And now we're at a point where it's like, Oh, I have multiple, you know, high profile projects that we're juggling at the same time. Um, my wife actually stepped away from her job and she is, this sounds so weird to say this. She's acting as my assistant. So she's hmm. basically negotiating convention stuff with, uh, the people that do conventions. So we get to do some cool trips together, um, and figuring out sort of my schedule making sure that the little stuff like sending reference along to people or making sure files are getting uploaded, get taken care of. And so that's, a really important part of how this thing functions now uh, so that when I get home, it's literally like, okay, I'm going to go to my office and just write. I'm going to go to my office and deal with whatever emails are most 
crispy and need to be flipped over, you know? So <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so we have a big convention here in Toronto this weekend called Fan Expo Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you and I are here chatting on, you know, uh, on the computer, she's downstairs literally packing boxes of inventory for the convention because it's the hometown show. So we can really bring a ton of books and have a really nice spread of stuff and make sure we got all the banners and make sure that those gas in the car and like all the little stuff that you could lose track of if you weren't paying attention. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Yeah. It's a great, honestly, it's been really great. Some people are like, how can you work with each other? Wouldn't you want to kill each other? And you're like, actually it's been good. And we were able to spend more time together because of it. So for most of the shows, when people ask me to come out, I'm basically like, well, I have to bring my assistant. So you're bringing my <laughs> wife. Uh, good news. You only have to get one hotel room. Uh, you know, but, uh, it works. It works. And we've been really uh, enjoying. We've been, the, Over the summer, we went to Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, in November, we're going to be going to Vienna, Austria for comics. Wow. Like this is... This is unbelievable. And I try not to take any of it for granted. I really, really want, you know, I try and let people know all the time online when I see them in conventions. Thank you. Like, thank you for reading the work. Thank you for supporting what I do because you've made my uh, nerdy dreams come true. And I get to do this <laughs> in, in, you know, someone messaged me and said, is it okay if I bring a stack of books to the convention? I'm like, wait, hold on. You bought my stuff. And now you're going <laughs> to schlep it all to the show just so I can write my name on it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Bring it's as in many, a stack. <laughs> as many damn books as you want, because you just made me able to keep doing this, you know? Ah. So, uh, yeah. That's all right. a long winded version of that answer. Well, I'll tell you the, the behind the scenes stuff like that is fantastic, but I think we'd be remiss if we did not pull it just a little bit closer in front of the scenes and talk about some X-Men on this ostensibly X-Men podcast. That would be good, right? We should talk about those mutants because like half your listeners are like, whatever, come on now, get to the stuff. <laughs> no, it's it, it's great, uh, great content. But the first thing that you wrote in the X atmosphere, I guess, orbiting the X-Men world, as it were, was a secret. The, the X-Men sphere. Yes. Uh, it was Secret Empire United, which was a one shot mm-hmm. during the uh, Hydra takeover of the United States. So how yes. how did that come about? Because that, you know, the whole new Teon and, you know, being part of this giant event, I assume is not just, I I assume you just didn't walk into Tom Brevoort's office and say, hey, I'd like to pitch this weird one-off story about the X-Men living under fascist right, right. rule. So in that particular case, I was already writing Thunderbolts uh, for Marvel and that had, uh, ties to Secret Empire because of Kobik, the young girl Cosmic Cube was on our team plus Bucky and so we were spinning into a lot of the stuff that was happening with Steve Rogers um, so I was in relatively close contact with Nick Spencer so as he was pulling together all the pieces for Secret Empire I was one of the first people who was not editorial who kind of knew about the Captain America reveal and was sworn to secrecy because he was like if this goes out I'll know it's you and I'll kill you <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I get that you want to have the big payoff of the reveal when you, when you plan it. Um, so I was threading a bunch of stuff into Thunderbolts and it was working relatively well and people liked it. And, uh, Nick liked the character stuff I was doing. And he said, I, I know you like X-Men stuff. I've heard you talk about it at conventions and whatever before. 
do you want to tackle this one shot? Uh, I, you know, I kind of, uh, I, I don't mind throwing your name out for it. And I said, well, what does it entail? And he goes, oh, you know, it's this concept of this sort of, you know, border dispute between the mutant nation and Hydra and how it spins out in all these different directions. And I said, like, what mutants do I get to use? And he goes, well, see, that's the thing. I'm not 100% sure yet, but it's probably going to be a pack of misfits. I'm like, done. <laughs> like, I actually want to use all the weirdos. Like, let me use. That's music to X fans' ears. A pack yeah, of I misfits. Use, like, the, not, they don't all have to be obscure, but give me a bunch of Warpo ones. Like, that's great, you know? And so uh, I actually put together a list that was so filled with, with rejects that, like, even the editor was like, could you, could you put some like muscle in there? Like, could you put some, <laughs> not muscle, but you know what I mean? Like some, something that people will recognize. And I was like, Oh, come on. What are you talking about? More marrow. This will be great. Um, so yeah, I was like, I was just throwing all these weirdos in there and they, you know, they let me keep most of them. And then I added a few more, uh, uh, I guess you'd say mainstream ones. Mm-hmm. And we, and we sort of threaded how this thing was going to work. Um, the only thing that made me sad was, was that in the original plan, we were going to keep it a secret that Emma was actually running things. Uh, so that was like, you know, this was a, a piece that, that uh, Nick had come up with and he was like, it'll be really cool. People will freak out because they've been wondering where Emma is and this will be all crazy. And I was like, cool. And then the solicit came out and it was like, Emma's got her own team of X-Men. And I was like, oh, okay. That's also <laughs> a way of doing it. That's another... Oh, uh, that's a thing that happened. Okay, cool. Well, I, people are excited, you know, so you just sort of got to roll with it. Now, I remember when that came out and there were a lot of people very pumped about what what the cover shows, Emma punching Nazis, which is right, an appealing right. thing to a lot of ex-fans. Oh, absolutely, right? And I was like, yeah, that's a cool cover, but the, the reveal of Emma, again, was supposed to be secret. So I was sort of like, oh, I'm kind of choked because it's a cool cover and I, I don't know. And so I, I was talking to the editor about it and I said, um, yeah, in an ideal world, we change that cover. And he's like, yeah. And then I didn't hear anything. And then the next thing I knew, they'd change the cover. And I went, oh, oh, okay, well, uh, yeah, cool, great. Yeah, God, God bless the fact that uh, Chris Bachelot had very similar designs for Emma in Magic in that era because yes yes it ended up working out relatively well but uh yeah no i'm really proud i think the issue turned out really cool um and and it's got a really nice like considering that we how much we pack into those 30 pages it's uh yeah there's a lot of different thematic stuff there's some fun little action bits we cover quite a bit of ground considering that there's not there weren't that many issues with the new teon stuff Mm. when you get right Mm -hmm. down to it so no yeah yeah, it was a way we had to sort of say a lot in a very short kind of page count, all things considered. Right. Now, I've, mm-hmm. I've got to ask, because we consider ourselves, at least I consider myself, and I think Adam would fall into this group, connoisseurs of obscure X-Men. Oh, nice. So who who was the most obscure person you had on that very large roster? <laughs> I just, I need to uh, know. Gotta know. Gotta know. Oh, man, okay, now this is the annoying part, because now that, of course, I'm on the spot, I have to think of who the most weird one was. Uh, if I get the name wrong, I'm going to be really kicking myself. Is it Zerg, the guy with the the Morlock who shoots stuff out of his eye? Erg. Ooh, Erg. Talking about Erg. Yes. Erg, Zerg, Erg. Yeah, that dude was on it. <laughs> he was on my list originally. <laughs> 
I was like, dude's got an eye that shoots lasers. We'll take that. He guy. has been yeah. surprisingly yeah. prominent what? in X Men media with the Morlocks. Yes. He like every animated show that cool. has him, he shows up. Well, it's because he's got a he's got a a lot of the Morlocks don't really have good visual mm-hmm. powers. Like they don't have the kind of powers. Like you know, as cool as leeches and all that stuff you're like okay your powers turn off you're like oh, okay how about someone that fights oh this guy shoots stuff from his eyeball got it that guy he's half cyclops <laughs> that's the guy yeah right lightning by uh, eyeball guy yeah so he was on my he's probably the most obscure one that i had in my life i was hoping you could tell us uh, this is another project that you have actually upcoming that hasn't come out yet mm-hmm. um but the solicits the solicits have come out for the upcoming issue of champions that addresses uh, gun violence on school campuses. Right. Um, this is, and I think I, I work in education and I, I'm actually surprised that this topic has not been addressed more in comics. Um, even since we, you know, recently saw the success of the March for our lives rally in the mm-hmm. spring. Um, why did you want to tell this story and, and why with, with the champions? Well, I felt like particularly the champions has under when Mark had the series, he, the, the, the book has always had a bit of an activist spirit. It's always Mm -hmm. sort of talked about political issues and current issues. And so, although I'm not leaning into that as hard, it's still kind of baked into the way that the book works. And then, um, you know, the issue itself just seemed to obviously flare up in early in the year. And I just thought, man, this is a place where we can actually show kids in school reacting to these kinds of events, how these things actually happen and how it affects them. Um, rather than just us wagging our finger and saying no more guns. It's, it's about what happens when this sort of thing hits so close to home. How does it change going to school? How does it change your life? I don't want to say any much, you know, more than that plot wise, but that's really where our focal point is. And I felt like the champions were the best place to do it, that, that, that was really, you know, the teenage team at Marvel right now. And that there was a good variety of characters and personalities that would really work for this. And I got to give so much credit to Tom Brevoort because Tom is pretty fearless about this stuff. The first meeting I ever had with Tom, we had one of the best conversations I've ever had with an editor. Um, and he said to me, he goes, I can be convinced of things. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, I think a lot of times uh, uh, writers want to please their editor. And so they just want to get something approved. And he goes, I obviously want you to get things approved as well. But if you really believe in something, if you're really passionate about it, it's okay to fight for it. It's okay to build your case and to bring it to me and try and convince me. I'm not fragile. I'm not brittle. I don't need to win. I just want to tell good stories. And he said, you know, like Ed Brubaker brought me the winter soldier. And of course, at first I said, Oh, hell no. And eventually uh, that worked out pretty good. Uh, (laughs) You know, so he's like, you know, if you believe in something, make me believe, you know what I mean? And so there's sort of these different conversations, like Tom and I'll have a regular conversation. It's just, hey, here's the new thing. Here's what I'm working on. Here's what I'm thinking coming up. And then there's ones where you know you're kind of walking in and you're like, okay, I know it sounds crazy, but this is going to be great. And you're sort of building your case and really trying to put it, you know, make it make sense. Make it, you want Tom in your corner because he's the one who's going to take it up the ladder 
and then fight for it all the way to the top. And that was the way this went. I said, look, I know, I know it's a hot button issue. I know it would be infinitely easier for us to avoid this, but I, I think we need to lean into it. I think we can do something special here and I think it matters. Was there, was there pushback on, Uh, you know, it's just, it's just fear. It's just fear. It's just people afraid of, of those negative news reports and, and, you know, the political backlash and all that sort of stuff. No one disagreed with the concept and no one disagreed that we had a story to tell. It was just straight out. As soon as we start this thing rolling, we know it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. We're going to get it potentially from all sides if it's not done carefully, you know? And so first of all, there was this sort of sense of, are we ready to do this? Because once you commit yourself to this, it's a runaway train, you know what I mean? In terms of, we don't know what kind of press coverage we're going to get. We don't know what kind of social media backlash you're going to get. Like, are you ready for that? Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of the quality of the story, regardless of anything else, you have to understand that there are factors here that are out of our control. Uh, And I'm like, yep. And it's like, okay, everyone loves the story. They love the concept. Everyone's excited about, you know, the storytelling potential and the emotional payoff and everything that we built. And so then it got, it went through every, every level of the halls of power. That's the only way I can put it. Um, and, and in a good way, like we got great feedback. We got great, um, just across the board, everyone, and no one said no. Everyone was just like, are we aware of this? Are we keeping mm-hmm. track of that? And that was it. But in terms of the validity of the story and the, the purity of what we put on the page, it's all there. Like what I wanted is what we got. And so uh, if people really like the issue, you know, I'm thrilled and uh, I, I'm, you know, humbly, uh, you know, Sean and, and Marcio and everyone on the team worked their, their hearts into this thing. And if they hate it, like that is my fault. Like uh, I'll take that, you know, because I'm the person that initiated this and, and got the ball rolling. So no, I, th- well, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it and I'm really glad that you took the opportunity to, you know, try and do something like this. Zach? Well, I was going to say, obviously, social media backlash and, you know, how people are going to take a story is something you've put a lot of thought into. And I, I think that yeah. dovetails yeah. very well into what you're probably most known for in the last few weeks, uh, which has been... Right. Uh, the Hunt for Wolverine Mystery and Mad Report number four. So this will inc- this part, if right. you haven't read this, there's going to be spoilers. But like, guys, you, if you're listening to our podcast, you probably they're listening to an X-Men podcast. I assume they've at least <laughs> heard uh, Psylocke's British or right. she's in her old body. She was always British. It's a whole thing. Well, she's always been British. I mean, that's that's kind of the crux of it, isn't it? She's always yeah, been good. British. Um, yeah, yeah, we we did a crazy thing and, uh, the, honestly, the response has been really good. Like the majority of people that I've interacted with have been ecstatic or excited, uh, there, they see the potential in what we're doing and, um, that, that, you know, these characters always, the X-Men in particular, go through permutations and changes and evolutions in their history and that this is no different uh, as far as I'm concerned and, and a, a source of really cool storytelling and drama. to come. So, so this is, this is a interesting, exciting idea. And one that I know 
at least in the last few years, has been a topic of a lot of discussion amongst, you know, the fan community of, hey, this Psylocke thing in retrospect, what was supposed to initially be like a three issue story by Claremont that got stretched out, stretched out, stretched out. And here we are 20 plus years later. Uh, it, it's been something a lot of people have been approaching just what that means and if that was the right move for the character. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. what what got you thinking that now was the right time to make this change for Psylocke? And you know, how, how'd that come about? I, you know, part of it is, is whenever you start working on these properties, you, you've always got your own little checklist of, oh, it'd be cool if, it'd be interesting if, wouldn't that be neat? And then the, the fact that we're now in this strange space where I can pitch this stuff and in theory, people don't reject it instantly. They're actually like, we're going to talk about this. We're going to, we're going to potentially do some of this stuff. It's cool. And I try again, not to take any of this stuff for granted. Like I don't want to approach any of this stuff um, half-hearted or, or just shooting from the hip. Um, we knew that, that the Hunt for a Wolverine uh, books, each of them were going to kind of have their own, revelatory things that were going to be happening. And when we were talking about what some of those could be and how they could take place, I brought up this uh, idea of altering Psylocke and, and returning some aspects, but she's not going back in time. She's still done all those things that she's done. And, you know, um, extra spoilers, you know, the end of the issue, uh, you know, Betsy's Japanese body is around. Like there's not just mm-hmm. her as British Betsy. There's more now. And, and the reason why the team got excited about it and why I think we were able to get any momentum was because I said, we're not losing a character. We're gaining a character. We're going to add a character to the mix that we can work with, you know, as a future ingredient to cool dramatic X-Men stories. So it's not about negating Betsy or, or taking away the things that she's done. It's about building um, new stories with these new ingredients. And so then it became a matter of, well, okay, how does this work on a, I mean, it's comics. There's always a way right. to make it work, but wh- how does this function? How does this track as, as comic logic? And uh, I had a, a, a funky way to do that as well. And it was all centered around this obscure villain that, Claremont had created called Sapphire Sticks. And she's literally, I think she's shown up in seven issues of Marvel Comics since Mm -hmm. the late 80s. And so I was like, well, she's going to be the the fulcrum of this thing. I feel like we can use her in a really cool way and and make this happen and tie into all these cool Madripoor stories, which makes it very, you know, relevant to mystery and Madripoor, like as a concept and as an overall sort of push. That, that we're going to bring in literally the original Madripoor stories where she's there and we're going to tie it into current X-Men stuff and we can just weave this funky kind of wild, uh, you know, action-packed thing that's full of twists and turns. And, and uh, you know, it was one of those things where you're throwing the ideas into the mix and I keep waiting for people to say, no, no, no. And it was just like, uh, you know, everyone, I, they would ask questions, but it was always like, oh, cool. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Oh, okay. Oh, you've thought about this. You're like, yep, I'm always overthinking this stuff, uh, you know, and, and and taking it through sort of every level of the process. So I know that doesn't sound very like 
bolt out of the blue. Oh my God. But that was really kind of where it came from. And, and really this idea that we can do something uh, to sort of kickstart a bunch of new, cool, dramatic plot lines for Betsy and for, you know, inadvertently and for Quanon. this, this idea of, you know, that the, yeah, that we have more now to work with as in terms of characters. And I knew, of course, there was going to be some contentious, you know, elements to it. And people were going to, um, particularly when, when it leaked out what was coming before they actually read the issue. So people didn't know that we had uh, the body still mm-hmm. in play. So that was tough because people were freaking out and screaming and yelling. And I was sort of like, okay, just, you know, wait till the end of the month and wait for the issue to come out. And then at least people are, are reacting to what's really there instead of reacting to their assumptions about what right. will be there. And I think that that's, you know, part and parcel of the thing. So it's, um, it's been, it's been cool and it's been exciting. And I, and I'm excited because the uncanny X-Men team, you know, embraced what I was doing. And now, you know, she's on the, the weekly book coming up and, um, it's great. I think it's, a, it's just a nice thing to be able to, whenever you make something in the Marvel universe, uh, you know, selfishly, like I want it to mean something. I want it to last. I want it to be interesting. And I want it to be something that people talk about because the stories that I remembered growing up were the ones that seemed to kick the hornet's nest and mm-hmm. do crazy things that when Spider-Man got his black suit, you were like, what? You can't do that. <laughs> you know, or when yeah. you know, Thor loses his hammer and better Ray bill gets it or any of these things, any of these cr- storylines that at the time seemed so crazy and seemed like they were just out of control. And now you look back and you go warmly, like those were some of the most fun stories because I didn't know what was coming next. And, uh, you know, I felt like Betsy had sort of kind of not, I don't want to say fallen into a rut because I know that people really like her and that the, the writers that have worked on her have been passionate about it, but it just felt like you couldn't, you couldn't change anything. And I was like, well, I'll grab the tiger by the tail. Let's, let's change some things. Let's see if we can make this, you know, really add up a bunch of new dramatic potential. It's a, it's an interesting development. I think that's part of the reason why there has been so much talk about it because it's new. It's not what I expected on a tie in to the lead up to the return of Wolverine book. All things, all things considered. Right. Right. Well, and see, because Madripoor was a core ingredient of, of sort of, you know, these things, but, but it was also this idea that when Betsy became uh, lady uh, uh, Mandarin and all that, you know, Wolverine was such an integral part of that initial story. And it's an amazing story that, those Jim Lee issues are just like every panel's burned into my brain. They're beautiful and they're wonderful. And I was like, well, you know, Patch and, and, and Wolverine are kind of integral to Betsy's story in some ways. I feel like there's definitely a tie there that we can build into. And we, we tease that in the first issue where, you know, uh, we talk about their philosophy and their fighting and all this sort of stuff. And, and we're kind of building up to something, but readers didn't necessarily know what that was going to be. It was an unexpected, but delightful surprise. So one of the things that a lot of people brought up and you did yourself was some of the concerns that some people had specifically about, you know, Psylocke and how changing her back impacts represent 
Asian representation in comics. And frankly, because this is mm-hmm. <laughs> because this is X-Men and the Salat Kwan and stuff is just this tangled mess of everything. It's not a perfect one-to-one real right. world thing, but effectively what does happen here is one of the more prominent Asian presenting characters in comics, you know, goes away from that level of prominence. Right. So I'm I'm curious what was your thought process with that and what would you say to fans who have those concerns? Like I at the end of the day, I'm not here to tell someone what they should believe do you know what i mean like i don't want to get into this thing where i go well you have to look at the story this way and this is how it is and and your concerns don't matter because it's just not the case you know people get passionate about these stories and they're passionate about these characters and that is totally valid you know uh as a reader now i get you know invested in these stories and in these characters absolutely and i so there's no I have no ill will against someone who tells me they didn't like the story. They don't like what we did. They feel we've made a mistake. I, that is totally, you're right. I have no problem with that whatsoever. The only thing that I can sort of say is that those concerns and those fears were not, they didn't come out of the blue with us either. Like I didn't step into this and go, geez, oh my gosh, people are going to be upset. Like I knew Again, like I sort of said, we're grabbing a bit of the tiger by the tail. So in the end, we have to have something cool that comes out of it. We have to have stronger representation by the time this is all said and done. And I don't mean Mystery Magipore number four. I mean when we look back years from now and when we look back after future stories and all the things that are yet to come, that there's an aggregate strength rather than a weakness, if that makes any sense whatsoever. It, you know, that, that we didn't go into this with our eyes closed. Uh, you know, again, some people are not going to be able to accept it. They're not going to want it. And that's fine. Like, you know, some of the stuff that happens to characters now in stories, I get ticked off about. Some of the stuff that happens in movies now, I get ticked off about. And when I was a young reader, it would have been 10 times more intense. So I totally get it. I'm not trying to erase anyone's feelings or, or I don't, I don't laugh any of this stuff off, uh, you know, but equally, I think it's important to know that, that if we don't take risks and we don't try and do dramatic things with these characters, they grow stagnant they grow mm-hmm. boring. They grow, um, they, they, they run out of possibilities because people are too afraid to mm-hmm. change them. You know what I mean? One of the things that people talk about all the time when they talk about the new heroes at Marvel, like I'm writing the champions and they're like, you know, don't like Kamala Khan and, and Miles Morales, like they are just as heroic and special and important as any other characters at Marvel. And the way you show that is you have to do bad things to them mm-hmm. so they can show us their heroism. Do you know what I mean? If we yeah. treat characters differently because, uh, we don't want to hurt them or we say, Oh, people might get mad. Then we're robbing them of the dramatic potential that, that Steve Rogers has that Bruce Banner has that anyone else has. And so maybe that means we might make mistakes and, you know, maybe 10 years from now, people will write articles and say, man, that thing that Jim did and everything that came after was a big mistake, but I don't feel going into it, that that's what we're going to get. And that's not the plan. Certainly we want to have, uh, more possibilities and more cool things that we can do with Psylocke and um, 
you know, the other stuff that we sort of teased at the end of Mystery and Madripoor, that, that she's not just walking away in a white woman's body and nevermore will we see that character that people have grown to no. enjoy. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the only thing I can say without like getting full spoilery. And, and the X office supports this, which isn't to say that that means it's therefore perfect. It just means there is thought put into this and there is care that's been put into it and, and a desire to come out the other side stronger in terms of both representation and strong characterization and good dramatic storytelling, that that is what drives what we do. And the same thing holds true, whether I'm writing the champions or I'm writing mystery and magic war, whether I'm writing Avengers or, or anything else like story comes first. And so if we don't take risks, if we don't do weird stuff, if we don't kick the hornet's nest a bit and make you take notice, I feel like that's a disservice to the kind of stories that made me such an ardent fan growing up. If you would have told me that they were going to do the stuff they did with British Betsy back in the day, I would have said, Oh my God, that's crazy. You've ruined everything. This character is beloved, awesome, cool. You know, those Captain Britain stories are so cool. And I really enjoyed them. I really like the old, you know, new mutants annual and all that stuff where Betsy's first coming into the team or that seminal issue for me where she fights, uh, where, where Betsy fights Sabretooth, you know, during the mutant massacre and all that stuff. I love those stories. I think they're really wonderful. And I did little nods and callbacks to them in mystery and Madripoor because I think that they're seminal character moments and they're special, but you can't just navel gaze and you can't just look to the past. You can't just reproduce and, and freeze characters in amber and never mess with them because that's a disservice. You need to try things. You need to, to shake things up. You need to put them through the paces and have them show us why they're great characters and what they're capable of. And the only way of doing that is by pushing, pushing things in, in awkward directions sometimes. And that isn't to say that every one of those stories is going to be great, but I feel in the long run, taking the risk is better than not taking the risk. And I think that's a great way to kind of put a bow on that whole, that whole side of thing, which there's a lot to unpack with Psylocke and Quadded and all of that stuff. <laughs> sure. And I, and I don't, and I don't have a perfect answer for it. Like, and I, I would never pretend to say like your fan frustrations are invalid. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that that's not cool either. I've been those people raging over multiple pints over my favorite or not favorite storylines or how whatever creative team ruined the things, you know, I've been there. I've been one of those people and I am one of those people. I'm a comic reader. I'm a comic right. creator. I'm very opinionated. Right. Um, but equally, I, the only thing I can sort of say to the people who are like, Oh, you know, burn my books. Like everything's terrible now. Like I hope honestly, I know there's a contingent of X-Men fans just as there are Spider-Man fans and, and every other type of, of reader who, who sometimes hate reads their favorite books and sometimes reads their books with love. And I hope they keep reading. I hope they keep reading and see in the aggregate what we've been trying to do and, and some of the cool dramatic potential inherent in, in these ideas. Well, Jim, I think this has been great. I know we are pushing up on time so we're going to actually skip the twitter questions and stuff but uh you know as we uh get through this one thank you for being on the show and uh two 
where can people find you online if they want to hear more about Jim Zub and all the things that you've got going on? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, the easiest place to find me is obviously my website. So it's jimzub.com. On there, I talk about obviously my convention appearances and stuff that I've got on the go. Um, I also have a lot of tutorials. So I, I talk about how comics are made, how stories are pitched, the whole process, really. Uh, everything, including economics and a lot of things that, that uh, I hadn't seen previously uh, people talk about online that much in terms of the comic creation process. But I'm most active on Twitter, so it's just at Jim Zub, J-I-M-Z-U-B. If people want to ask me stuff, they want to tell me what they like, they want to post photos of themselves with the comics, tell me what they don't like. Like, I'm totally down with it, and uh, I really like having those interactions. And, I, and as long as people are polite and, and understand that, you know, social media is not my job, so I'm not going to be on there at your beck and call 24-7, but then I'm more than happy to, to you know, see what people are into and what they're enjoying. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. I also have on Tumblr, you can do an Ask Me Anything, so I get a lot of questions about the comics and what we're doing in upcoming storylines. Now that's that that's good. Now what what books do you have? I guess you know coming up next month, next couple of months that you want people to be keeping a keen eye on on Wednesdays. Sure. So uh, I will pimp my creator-owned series. If you like my superhero stuff, I have a book at Image called Wayward. It's sort of like Buffy in Japan. There's teenagers fighting Japanese mythological monsters on the streets of Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> we're running through our final story arc, so we're heading towards issue 30, which is the big finish. Six trades in total. Uh, really proud of the book, and it's one of the reasons I'm writing Champions is because people really like the way I write teenagers and the way I deal with sort of the angst and the teen drama stuff. Um, really, really proud of the book. And Steve Cummings, my collaborator on that, is just a bullet. He's really, really good. Uh, I, I do Champions Monthly at Marvel, and we've done some really exciting stuff since I took over with issue 19. Uh, we're coming up on the, the 25th issue, and in uh, 24 is the issue that you mentioned earlier about a school shooting at Miles Morales's school. Mm -hmm. And then in issue 25 in October, we're taking the team to Weird World, so we're doing a fantasy arc which i'm absolutely thrilled about because i also write the official dungeons mm. and dragons comic and D, D is like in my blood and uh the sword and sorcery stuff i love the x-men annuals where they go to asgard they're absolutely some of my favorite comics ever made and being able to channel that kind of feeling that i had when i was growing up and seeing those characters go through those uh, sword and sorcery permutations there's also those issues uh i think it's i if i get the issue number wrong one 172 with Cullen Gath, where everyone gets turned into fantasy stuff. Uh, those ones are, that's Uncanny X-Men. That's just killer. I love those issues to bits. So if you if you like that kind of stuff, seeing your heroes sort of taken in weird, funky directions, I think people are really going to enjoy that at Champions. Um, I've got another Marvel project that's going to get announced before New York Comic Con that I'm very pumped about. And other cool stuff coming in 2019. All right. And Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. We've got new pages of Bish and Jubes, Attack on the Mansion coming out at adamrec.tumblr.com every X-Men Monday. And if you want a copy of uh, Bish and the search for Bish and Jubes, you can go over and get a copy for $1 over at adamrec.bigcartel.com. Zach, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Xavier Files or at XavierFiles.com. That's also where we put all of the uh, episodes and everything that goes on in the Xavier Files Media Empire that's pretty much 
orbiting around X-Men at any given time. Uh, I do want to put a quick plug. As long as you don't have any legal requirements to not be able to read Vision Jubes, you should go read Vision Jubes. It's a very, very good comic. Uh, <laughs> beyond that, everything about this podcast and the website and all that stuff is powered by the fine folks over on Patreon. If you go over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files, you can pitch in as little or as much as you want, but at the $2 level, we will craft an entire episode of this podcast all around you in one of your suggestions, just like next week when we talk about a lot of stuff involving the Phoenix, which will be very interesting. We got some good stories there. Uh, I think that kind of wraps it up one last time. Jim, thank you so much for uh, coming in. It was a great conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And like I said before, thank you for reading. You know, everyone that um, picks up the books and, and lets us know on the team what we're doing and what you like, it it means a lot. Buy Jim's stuff. It's really good comics, people. You should check that out. Uh, but until next time, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!